Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm Natalie Pearson, and today I'm joined by Associate Professor Daniel Tan from the School of Life and Environmental Sciences here at the University of Sydney. Dan, I've had a look at your academic profile and you're an enthusiastic embracer of multidisciplinary centres. I can see that you're an active member not only of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, including as our country coordinator for Cambodia, but that you're also a member of the Sydney Nano Institute as well as the Charles Perkins Centre. Dan's research focuses on crop agronomy, specifically abiotic stress. So he looks at the impact of stresses such as extreme temperatures, drought or excessive water on the growth, development, yield and seed quality of crops like cotton, wheat and chickpea. And Dan, I was also delighted to hear that you have worked on broccoli development. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks, Anthony. Okay, Dan, uh, you have worked on all sorts of different crops, but today we're going to be talking about rice in particular and we're going to be talking about rice in Cambodia. So you've been working in northwestern Cambodia since 2016 on this particular project, which is funded by the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research. And it brings together researchers from Sydney Uni as well as uh, researchers in Cambodia. And the reason you focused on the northwest is because this part of Cambodia is home to two or three of the largest rice producing provinces, accounting for almost a third of the country's rice production. The International Rice Research Institute has highlighted your research project as making a major contribution to efforts to improve food security in Cambodia through supporting sustainable intensification and diversification in rice production. Can you tell us why this rice production in Cambodia is such an important topic? Yes, um, rice is a very important part of Cambodian life. It's a major staple and also Cambodians eat rice with almost every meal. And in fact, I think there are over 2,000 indigenous rice varieties developed by Cambodian farmers over the centuries since the Angkor days. And also, whenever I visit there and I go to the different districts, they seem to have a different rice variety. And when I visited once near to the Tongle Sap area, they had rice there, what they call floating rice, and it grows to like two, three, four meters long. The reason why it grows long is because the Tongli Sap floods out and they have rice that just follows the flood all the way up. How high does rice normally grow? Normally it's less than a meter. I think this rice is quite rare now. I've only seen one or two farmers growing this type of rice and it's only found, I think, in parts of Myanmar, Cambodia and uh, Vietnam. So it's pretty rare now, the floating rice. So why else is rice important? Obviously, there's a great diversity of rice types in Cambodia, but why else is it important? I think it's important because it contributes to food security. And just last month, I think in 4th of April, the white rice exports were suspended from Cambodia to help secure local rice supplies during the COVID-19 crisis. But white rice exports have resumed now as the Cambodian government managed to keep COVID-19 under control. So obviously the Cambodian government was concerned that by exporting too much rice, there might be threats posed to domestic food security. How easy is it for them to grow the rice? Growing rice is actually pretty easy because most Cambodians know how to grow rice. They have usually a rice field at the back 
But the problem with rice is that in Cambodia, most Cambodians grow only one crop of rice a year. That's very limiting compared to in Vietnam or Thailand where they grow sometimes two or three crops a year because they have good infrastructure like irrigation and supplementary water. How can the farmers maximise the crop yields that they're getting? What sort of interventions, agricultural interventions, can they make with their crop? One way to maximise the growth is to intensify production, which means optimise it by planting it using machines instead of broadcasting by hand. What do you mean by broadcasting by hand for those of us who are not agriculturalists? Yes, Broadcasting by hand is a very traditional old way of doing it. It goes back to biblical times when you have the parable of the sower. You just sow the seed by just throwing it out into the soil. The problem with that system is you get birds eating them. And so that's uh, very risky and they have to throw out a lot of seed and a lot of it is wasted. So what we have done in our project is to help farmers to look at alternatives such as growing rice using machinery, like sowing it with machinery so that it's sowed into the ground and where the birds can't get them. I appreciate that your researchers are working in Cambodia at the moment. Certainly one of the things that you must be looking at is how these farmers understand when to plant, what fertilisers to use, how much water to put on the crops. A lot of the NGOs that go in or agencies, they go in and they want to teach farmers what to do. I'm looking at it from a different research perspective because I want to work out what the needs of the farmers are before helping them because that's the, the better way to do a needs analysis first. So we ask the farmers first, where do they get the information from? So when we ask them, they tell us maybe only about 5-10% get their information from the government. But they always say that they get half the information from their neighbours, especially the neighbours that they think are leading farmers or leaders in the village. And the other half of the farmers say they get it from input suppliers like the corner store where they buy the fertilisers or chemicals. That's really interesting. And I'm curious to know what sort of methods or methodologies you use to find out this information. I mean, how do you identify what these networks are? I've collaborated with Peter Martus. We've just got a social network analysis paper accepted, and it shows that farmers that are considered to be local influencers, they're not always progressive and not always receptive to conservation agricultural practices. And sometimes it is the leading farmers who are not the most popular, but who have very good networks between diverse communities and have a lot of knowledge that are more innovative. So in our project, we try to identify these innovative leading farmers and train them. And then these leading farmers then train other farmers in farmer school demonstrations. And we find that the smallholder farmers tend to adopt practices faster if they see a leading farmer adopting it and demonstrating these good agricultural practices to them. We also noticed that some farmers get information from the import sellers that sell them fertilizers and chemicals. And we also train them so that they can give better information to their customers and they can better serve their smallholder farmers. 
find it absolutely fascinating how wide the applicability of social network analysis is. Uh, we did a podcast recently with Dr. Sandra Seno-Alde from the Business School, and she's also using social network analysis or network analysis to look at economic networks in ASEAN and the EU. So thank you for explaining how you're applying it in the Cambodian rice context. One of the goals of your project is to promote improved productivity for these smallholder farmers. So how do you measure and monitor rice growth? Yes, we're doing it different ways. We can do it with satellite. One of my PhD students is actually monitoring it using tools like UAVs, which is drones, basically. But my team has organized farmer skill schools, and we train farmers at three different stages, at planting, and then one when the crop is sort of tillering, maximum growth, and then once at harvest. And the idea is to reinforce the key management practices during these key growth stages. And with this method, my team is giving farmers good knowledge of how to grow the crop the right way and doing it well. You've just mentioned the farmer field schools. How do you optimise attendance at those? Do you locate them close to the farms where the farmers live or do you hold them at community centres? It depends on the village. We've done it differently in different villages. So we try to find out who people actually listen to and follow and we try to do it on their fields so that it's believable on a real field, not on an experimental field. Thank you, Dan. Now, you mentioned before one of your PhD students. So I wanted to take a moment first to congratulate Lucinda Dunn, who has just won first prize in the Researchers in Agriculture for International Development, or RAID, blog competition. Now, Lucinda's prize-winning blog was ostensibly about plastic in Cambodia, but she was pretty clever the way she wrote it because she used plastic as a way of talking about what types of herbicides, insecticides and fungicides the farmers were using. And she could literally see these bottles where the farmers had discarded them um, scattered around the fields. Lucinda's work is part of your broader research agenda and it gets to the question of what the consequences are if farmers, including rice farmers, but also other crops like mung bean, if these farmers continue to use these pest management practices, what are the consequences and, and what alternatives are there? This is a really good question. What we try to do now is, in addition to asking farmers questions, we also go and have a look at the fields <laughs> to make sure they are telling us similar things to what is happening in the field. Sometimes they say we don't use chemicals and then we say, oh, really? And then we go to their fields, we see lots of bottles in there and they use a chemical and they chuck it next to their fields so you know what they're using. So we found that they use all sorts of chemicals that are really weird. Many of the chemicals they use are probably not registered for the pests that they are trying to kill. So we came up with hypothesis that the input sellers or the chemical sellers are trying to push chemicals and fertilizers to farmers. And it's a bit of a conflict of interest because they are trying to sell as much chemical as they can. And by selling all these chemicals that are very toxic, they are killing everything, including ladybirds and predators and good insects. And that's not the right thing. So we're trying to look at a different way of educating both farmers and input sellers on integrated pest management so that farmers are able to recognize and identify natural enemies such as ladybirds and not kill them and only use very soft pesticides that kill only the pests and not the predators and use these pesticides only as a last resort. 
So this is a perfect opportunity for me to ask you about the work of another one of your students who worked with Cambodian farmers in relation to mobile phone technology. And we might not think of farmers in Cambodia as having ready access to smartphones, but but they do. Um, a lot of smallholder farmers do have these smartphones. So how did your student or students tap into this technology and use it as part of this integrated pest management approach that you've just mentioned? Yeah, we found that although farmers were very poor, many of them had smartphones, even the really cheap Nokia ones. And some of them have access to smartphones through their children or from their neighbours. Also, many of them are using uh, Facebook. So my students, I have two students. One developed a weed identification app to help farmers identify weeds and also wheat seeds in rice. And the other one helped farmers to develop an app to help farmers identify pests and beneficial insects in mung bean. And the key feature is they are both available in Khmer as well as in English. And based on farmer feedback, the mung bean ID app also has a voiceover feature in Khmer. Sorry, Dan, to interrupt. So just let me clarify, that voiceover feature is used, for example, by farmers who can't read? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. I think it's because some of them were under the Khmer Rouge where they had a gap in their education and some could speak very good Khmer, but they couldn't read. So that's why they asked for voiceover because they can see the pictures on the app, but they couldn't read it. So have these been popular, the apps? What's the uptake been like? They are free apps. We developed it for them and then we release it both in Android and iOS versions. And they've gone viral and there are over 1,000, I think that's now close to 2,000 downloads. Such a fantastic initiative and I must congratulate your students. I'm sure they loved working on that project as well and having such tangible outcomes now, when we're talking of these farmers, are we talking about men or about women? And more broadly, what role does gender play in rice and other crop production in Cambodia? And how does this affect your research efforts and also your outreach efforts? Yeah, we're quite fortunate. We have a gender specialist, Dr. Rebecca Cross, on our project. And in her work, she found that men like to use machines Whereas women are much better at finance and also marketing rice and other crops. So with this knowledge, we are now in a better position to target our training to meet the needs of each gender. Even though men mostly like to use farm machinery, uh, we need to train both men and women because when they start buying all this expensive machinery, the decision is made by both the husband and wife. So we can't just train one and also women tend to do most of the selling of the rice and vegetables. So it's important to include them in the training for business and marketing skills. And also we noticed that sometimes during the training schools, uh, the women would stand in the corner. And we found also that women are really busy, like for example, cooking or sending the children to school. Sometimes we need to vary the time when we train the farmers because women sometimes are really busy. So we need to be sensitive to gender while we're doing our training for the farmers. Are we talking about selling at the local market or are they, they selling to these larger supply chains for export? At the moment, a lot of the farmers sell at the farm gate. So they will dry the rice on the road 
next to their farm and then the buyers will come in and buy it. So that's not a very good system because they are price takers. So what they're doing with this project is also to help to link them with the supply chains. We are working with these farmers, especially with women, to look at having some quality assurance. It's a system called Sustainable Rice Platform. And we're working with them to, to develop this so that they can get a higher price by selling directly to the mills and they get a much higher price because they're producing the rice at a higher quality as well. And then it cuts out a lot of the brokers in between as well. So we try to get them better market access. Dan, there are many constraints and challenges in agronomy in Cambodia, and some of which you've sketched out today, including limited access to information about the use of pesticides and other environmental pollutants, the tendency to rely on a monocrop rather than diversifying, threats to food security. But I'd like to instead ask you to wrap up today by telling us what opportunities exist. Um, for example, is your research through this project a chance to work with farmers to build capacity and to learn from them about what they need in order to be able to make informed decisions? Yes, exactly. I think we learn from each other. The, the key in any of these development projects is not to push information to them. I think the key is to find out what needs they are from the farmers and from the supply chain. We're using a four-pronged approach. One is that we are working with Cambodian university lecturers so that we train them to train their students to build capacity for the next generation of Cambodian farm advisors. And in addition, our partners, the University of Badambong, um, they have also set up a callback radio program to advise farmers on better farming practices in addition to the farmer field schools. And uh, the second uh, way we're trying to do it is directly to the farmers. We are training the smallholder farmers through our leading farmers using farmer field schools. And while we are having this issue, you know, with lockdowns, with COVID, uh, what we're trying to do is put some of this training onto YouTube and putting it on to Facebook so that we can continue to train farmers. So the third way is we also train the government extension officers. We train them so that extension officers will train input sellers as part of the official certification uh, process. And finally, we also train the input sellers directly on integrated pest management and better fertilizer use so that they can advise and service their farmers better. With this four-pronged approach, we did it in three stages. First, we did a needs analysis. We did a survey and asked farmers what they needed. And based on that, we did some demonstration on-farm experiments. And we're now in the last phase of our project where we are doing this capacity building with a four-pronged approach as well as scaling. So we're not just doing it in our villages, we're scaling it out to other villages as well. So we have moved from four villages to like 12 villages now. We scale it out with our partners and bring it to other villages. Dan, thank you for giving us that fantastic overview of your work on rice in Cambodia and working with these um, smallholder farmers. Before we finish, I have to ask you, have you tried the floating rice and does it taste different from regular rice? Yes, I tried a little bit. I thought it was a bit hard, but it was very nutty and I think it's possibly more nutritious than the normal rice that we have. Associate Professor Daniel Tan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Natalie. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to SEAC Stories. 
brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our CX Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.